It's fair to say that this episode's guest is a little unconventional. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I'm your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 10. In this episode, I speak with Howard Whitehouse about his career as a novelist and game writer, and also uh, how to go about designing and running a convention game. We are, of course, brought to you by King's Hobbies and Games. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. I've talked in the past about the 3D printing products that Tim Spikowski sells, and I want to take a minute just to touch base with you about another series of products he has, and that is a series of painting class videos by James Wapple. Basically what you're going to be looking at is a video 100 minutes long. Tim offers various packages starting with one video for $20 all the way up to 15 videos for $240 and every number of videos in between. You can pick whichever videos you want to have or if you get the whole kickaboodle you get all of them. And the topics that are covered on these videos are everything from doing a shaded base coat, uh, non-metallic metals, using glazes, snow base effects, various other basing techniques, uh, metal sci-fi bases, uh, skin tones of various types, orcs and goblins, very dark drow, just about you name it, you got it. And it's it's a unique resource. The videos go really in-depth. They're professionally developed. They're really high-quality videos and definitely worth taking a look. So in addition to the various products that Tim sells. He's also got these videos and you definitely want to check those out if you want to take your painting to the next level. Of course those are available at kingshobbiesandgames.com. That's kingshobbiesandgames.com. After this quick break we'll talk with Howard. And we are back. Uh, today we are joined by author, novelist, and games writer, Howard Whitehouse. Howard, thank you for coming on today. It's a great pleasure to be here. As always, with all of my guests, I have to ask the question, Howard, what makes you a War Games veteran? A War Games veteran? You know, my, I regularly play with a, with a fellow called Dan Foley, who's about my age, and we have decided that within a few years of now, we will have a century of wargaming between us. <laughs> It's it's uh, it's quite sad. He and I both started uh, when we were probably twelve or so. You know, when you're when you're a kid, at least when you were a kid in the sort of you know the sixties and uh, early seventies, playing with with toy soldiers was just sort of one of those natural things. Um, and I think that most of us, you know, we we would set them up and throw a pencil eraser or or a rubber. Call it in England uh, at them, and, and just do those things. And it was only when I was about twelve, my friend Bill Powell found a book in the library by a man called Donald Featherston, and he says, "Howard, they have rules for this. You, you, you measure the dis. They can move set distances that you measure, and you roll dice, and it's a whole thing. You, you can have play out games without just throwing stuff at them." And I said, what, not, no, no throwing Legos at all? No, no, no throwing Legos in the slightest. So we, we started that, and um, we both had lots of airfix figures. He had, uh, I remember we, we started out, he had Romans and Ancient Britons with a, with a force. Like, that all came in a set. And um, I don't think he actually had the book. I think he had had to take it back to the library. So we just sort of made things up. 
and it wasn't very satisfactory. I think people with spears always kill people with swords or, or something like that. Um, but we really, really liked it, and it was about that time that the Airfix Waterloo sets came out, mm. and previously, you know, we'd all had sort of the unpainted figures, um, but I, I painted think I painted models with my father, you know, mostly you know the plastic aircraft. So I had some paints, and I first of all started out with World War Two figures, just sort of painting the faces in because they they came in the basic uniform colour. Sure. So I'd get some of my you know the grey Germans and I'd put paint faces on them, and then it's like okay that looks good. So I put a bit of black on the boots, and then I put a bit of brown on the rifles, and I probably didn't try for belts because that was probably you know, more sort of fine motor motor skills than I could manage at that time. Mm -hmm. But anyway, when the the Waterloo figures came out, it was obvious that they came in a cream sort of uh, uh, policy, and it was like, well, you know, I've got to paint these. So I I went out one day. I I must have been saving my pocket money because I bought three boxes of Airfix figures, which is, you know, incredibly ostentatious use of money. and I bought the, the Highlanders, the Curiosiers, and the, the artillery, the French artillery, the first ones out. And um, I don't know why I decided that I could just sort of paint them all in one afternoon. I clearly had no, no concept of how this would take. Um, but I painted the, the Gordon Highlanders, the French Curiosiers, and some French uh, artillery. And I did not understand at that time um, how, quite how colors worked. Mm-hmm. So I, I had some sort of light blue, and I had some black, so I thought if you mixed it, it would make dark blue. Whereas, of course, we know now, ha, 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 that if you do that, you just simply make it dark gray. Yeah. So my, my, my French artillery wore dark gray for you know quite a while. And um, I was tremendously happy with this. They were, uh, they were awful by any <laughs> other standards, but I was very happy with them. Well, that's really what and matters, so- right, that you're, that you're happy and you're having fun with it, right? Exactly, exactly, because that's what keeps us keeps us going. Um, and um, so this was the beginnings of, of a, a, um, a large collection of Airfix figures, which I which I built up sort of box by box um, until um, I thought I was about fifteen or sixteen when the the first um, minifigs, the strip minifigs, fifteen millimeters came out. Um, which would be sometime around 73, 74. And these were metal figures. And metal figures I had worked out, apart from the fact that they had a bit more prestige than FX figures, people tended to look down on FX figures a bit, sure. um, was that they would actually keep the paint on, um, which, uh, which was a big plus, because at that time n- nobody had any concept about what you were supposed to do to sort of keep the paint from flaking off plastic figures. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least nobody I knew had. Um, so uh, some metal figures, um, they kept their paint on, and uh, and I could I could afford the fifteen millimeter strip figures. I forget how much they were, but they were um, they were within pocket money prices. Um, whereas um, the uh, the twenty fives were just uh, you know I could afford a few occasionally, but but nothing resembling an army. Um, so I did. Uh, so this was in the mid '70s, and I, I, I started building. My, my plan was to, to have armies for the in, both sides in the Peninsula War, uh, which was a completely ridiculous plan because basically it would have involved me making the scale down equivalent of about half a million men. <laughs> Never happened. Um, 
but and and that taught me something, which is you know try and do something that you can actually cope with. Um, a little bit later on, I got I found a copy of uh, Don Featherston's was it Wargamers Digest? Was it Wargamers Newsletter? Wargamers Digest was the uh, the Jack Scruby publication, which being American, like, we never never saw that in England. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I found a copy of this at a, a model shop. And it had an account of a Western gunfight oh. played with the 54 mil plastics. Okay. And and um, and it's like ooh, um, so the, uh, so I went and got a, uh, some some Britain's um, plastic figures, which are you know, of the time, um, and it's like Western gunfight. You don't need armies. You just need you know one figure or maybe two or three figures aside. And you just—we've all seen the movies. You, you you step out from behind a barrel into Main Street and uh, shoot at the other fella. Mm-hmm. What could go wrong with that? <laughs> and and of course, the thing about Western gunfight is that whereas you can't persuade your ordinary friends to play Napoleonics with you, because why would you do that? Everybody has seen a Western movie, so you could just sort of you know t- hand your 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 pal a f- you know a few figures. And go. We're going to have a shoot. It's going to be like high noon. Um, Notice the incredibly authentic accent there. Oh, yes, yes. And so we could do that, and it was and it was great. And so, uh, so that was what I was doing in my in my teens. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, so high noon, and that coincidentally is probably one of my top three western movies, along with uh-huh. the man who shot Liberty Valance. Wonderful, and, yes. And Blazing Saddles. <laughs> Ah yes, the trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Western movies. Yeah. Uh, uh, and um, it, one of the things about being a, a war gamer in, in the in the seventies was that writing your own rules had was part of part of the hobby. Um, not everybody did it, but it was just when you read Don Featherston's books, he did not really say, "These are my rules. You must play my rules." What he said was, well, these are my rules. Play them if you want to. But, you know, you can write your own stuff, and, you know, these are the things that you might want to include if you write your own rules. Mm-hmm. Um, which, and, and then he would also include other bits, bits of other people's rules. So it was, it was sort of part of the, part of the, the wargaming culture. Um, and um, and I, I, I took to that. There, I mean, there were people who didn't. There was the... Uh, the beginnings of the sort of war games research group kind of uh, tournament culture and and the idea that it was good to have a set of rules that everybody could play um, because you could be in tournaments and you could always go down to a club that you'd never been to before and get a game with the rules that you knew mm-hmm. which I, I think sort of it made it, it I sort of understood the concept so it was like well yeah but it's not actually that much fun is it <laughs> um, and, and having fun is always the, the key thing for me. I, I obviously, you know, defining fun is is a, a personal thing because I'm assuming that people who engage in, you know, nail biting ancient tournaments are having fun, even though you know I would really rather pull my you know rip my own nails out. Um, but you know, clearly they're doing it because they enjoy it. But it wasn't my thing. I, I'm actually, I, I actually, I'm actually fairly convinced I'm a terrible war gamer. Mm-hmm. 
one of the reasons I like to, to design games and present games is because when I actually play games, the, the fact that I have no tactical sense and cannot think more than about a minute and a half ahead becomes very, very clear. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I've been covering that fact for, uh, you know, 50, or 40, 45 years, something like that now. I've, well, been, I've been covering that up badly, and now I admit it. Well, I think that that point speaks to... Well, what I like to refer to as the big tent approach to the hobby, where mm-hmm. different approaches to the hobby are are just as equally valid as long as the participants are having fun. So, Absolutely. So someone who is big into a tournament type of type of play, whether that's War Machine and Hordes or Warhammer Forty Thousand or DBA, DBA, you know, DBM, what have you, as long as they're having fun, that's fine. You know, right. and I'm not a big tournament player. I don't, I don't care to to do that. But I'm not going to look down on someone who does. It's their, it's their brand of fun. You know, I, again, I, I reference that that classic picture of the of the infant holding a pipe, wearing a sweater, saying, "I'm sorry, old bean. That's not the way to play pretend soldiers." <laughs> That's right. You're having fun wrong. Right. And <laughs> you know, and and if folks want to play games with intricately detailed perfectly represented figures from you know a, a particular battle and not use those figures with any other period one week one way or the other that's fine as long as they're having fun absolutely but if but if my gordon highlanders are just wearing you know a, a single color kilt cuz i can't be bothered to to paint plaid you know that's that's my deal you know? It is. It is indeed. Though I do think they should get a minus one from every die roll, <laughs> but plus one for wearing skirts. <laughs> so it cancels out. What you're looking at, Jimmy? What you're looking at? <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's that's, and, and again, I mean a lot of people get their enjoyment in from the modeling and painting aspect, and some people get it strictly mm-hmm. from the play. And you know, at at the end of the day, it's just a token. You know, it's it's a playing piece, no different than a pawn or a cardboard right. chit. At the end of the day, yeah, I mean, I'm inclined just to say, you know, I like to paint figures, and I, I paint figures to a pretty decent standard. Oh, but yes. let's they really they really are, you know, game pieces. Mm-hmm. And I, I I always have a bit of a, you know, there are over the past I suppose about fifteen twenty years. Um, you know the standard of of painting for, for certainly for, photo, for 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 you know display or for for photographs has come on enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's almost I have a friend who's a, a wonderful painter, um, but he will spend you know ten, twelve, fifteen hours on a figure, and it's a war games figure. I mean it's a, it's a you know it's usually usually for, for that effort he's doing. You know, one of those sort of you know twelve dollar fantasy figures that comes in nine parts. Mm-hmm. But still, it's it's an awful lot of work, and I'm thinking that's fabulous. And yet, I'm I'm not absolutely certain I want either me getting my grubby mitts or letting anybody else get their grubby mitts mm-hmm. on it. Um, and how many do you have? Um, I you know because it's it's it clearly took you forever to paint in that ten hours. I would have expected to paint, you know, depending on what it is, but but sort of ten, twenty, twenty-five figures, right? Um, you know, and have them on it and, and 
here they are and and you know I'll put a couple of coats of varnish on them and I'll put them in a box and carry them around with me and not worry too much about them mm-hmm. um so it's it's a different it's a different thing and I've got display figures that I've painted but I have to say that my display figures aren't nearly that good yeah <laughs> um you know um, so, so you know, clearly some folks are are very much, very you know, very much the painter, and the game is. Mm, it appears to be a bit of an add-on to that, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So they'll paint for a particular project, but maybe the painting is the most important part of it for them. Yeah, and that's absolutely fine. Oh yeah, absolutely, and mm-hmm. um, you know that's, and again, I mean you you get what you you get out of the hobby what you put into it and you you can't do it all you know there's you know there's no one person who's gonna write the best rules and paint the best figures and make the best terrain and can do their own conversions or maybe even sculpt their own figures You you just have to pick a specialization that you enjoy for lack of a better term and be a generalist in other places I think so. I mean, it's, you know, I like, you know, there are certain things I like, and there are some things that I'm certainly not going to, I'm not going to sculpt my own figures. No. Um, you know, I know people who do it really, really well, and for what, you know, is really a fairly reasonable amount of money, they will let me have them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah, you know, this week, I, I've just been painting, I, I, I've, you've seen my, my 42 mil shiny toy yes. soldiers. yes. And uh, a fellow in Saskatchewan, uh, who's who I'd seen some of his pictures on the blog, and he sent me uh, a unit of, of twelve nineteen fourteen ish French infantry mm-hmm. that he that he he um, sculpted and then you know just done drop castings, which were quite simple, and just sent them. And they're they're gorgeous. They're 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 full of character. They are not. Scale models, but they're quite cartoony, mm-hmm. and I love them. Oh yeah, and, and it's like, and it, it's, it's almost like you know, because he just, you know, it's kind of like I wish you would actually sell them, but you know, it's 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 a guy in his basement when he feels like it, right? Um, it's like John, I would, I would, I would, I would take a hundred of these, but but you know, that's not what you do because you cast them in your basement for fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I'm not going to ask you because that's really presumptuous of me. Right, you know? right. Well, I guess since uh, since our discussion is already digressed, <laughs> and we'll, all my discussions digress. That's okay. That's okay. We'll uh, well, let's do this. We can, if you would, we'll continue with what makes you a veteran war gamer. But let's uh-huh. go ahead and talk about um, let's talk about your career as a novelist, if you don't mind, okay. for a few minutes. Sure. And um, you know where where did you start with that? What was the what was the first novel? Well, I um, I had writ- I had written back in the eighties. I had written a couple of nonfiction books. I wrote uh, Battle in Africa, which uh, is basically an analysis of warfare in the colonial era in Africa before the First World War, and a book called A Widow Making War, which was essentially I was editing and adding to. The uh, the memoirs and letters of a, an officer of the, the Royal Engineers who uh, who served and, and sadly died of, of disease in the Zulu War, um, and I wasn't actually reading a lot of fiction at that time. Um, but right about 1990, I started reading 
I started reading Flashman. I started reading a lot of fiction. Um, and I decided, well, you know, why don't I write a historical novel? So, over the course of really a very long time, I, I wrote a, a book called The White Zulu, which is a, a humorous book about the Zulu War. And I have to say that at that time, you know, this was my first attempt at fiction, I over-researched the heck out of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that, that's amongst writers, I have suffered for my research, and now you will suffer too. <laughs> It, it really had it really had far too you know far too much detail about how an ox wagon is assembled. Um, anyway, I couldn't get anybody to be very interested in this. One of my uh, I, I, this was the this was the time before the internet, so you sort of had to go and uh, get books about uh, publishers and send things letters out of and see just see where it went. My favorite rejection. Um, and I think they had actually, you know, at least thought about it, but uh, the, the rejection was, we don't think our readers would be re interested in this subject written in this style. <laughs> Which I thought was tremendous in a kind of, huh, huh, kind of way. Um, and anyway, actually, that book, having been rewritten fairly considerably, and I'm sure we're going to do more work on it, is actually coming, finally coming out either end of this year or the beginning of next year oh, through a small, small, small specialist publisher in New Jersey. Um, so, um, so look out for the white Zulu. But um, anyway, I, I didn't write... I, then I wrote... I'd, I'd written some, some fiction, some short fiction for a project for Foundry, Called Victoriana uh, mm -hmm. about 1999 2000, um, and th the whole project just sort of got shelved. Um, never, never really happened. But I, but I kind of got into the mood of writing some some short fiction, and then I started running games with uh, at my local my local library. I was living in Toronto at the time, and. Um, the uh, the children's library. It was a very nice woman called Joanne Schwartz. Uh, had a group of kids who that she uh, mostly sort of inner city kids who hung around the library looking for things to do that weren't you know hanging around the streets. And so we started playing games. And I would take you know just sort of general adventure games down to them, and we had a good time. And she said, "Do you read children's fiction?" And I said. No, not really. Here's a few books that you might you might like. So I started reading, and of course, within 20 minutes, I was writing. And she uh, she she encouraged me, and her her husband read some of it and liked it. And so the uh, the first of my of my books for kids, which was the strictest school in the world, sort mm -hmm. of emerged from that. I just decided that what I wanted to write, I just you know. I don't know how all writers all writers get their ideas. I think it probably probably is different for everybody. But I had this idea that I wanted to write some kind of funny Victorian science fiction piece, mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to involve um, flying machines. I, evidently, I've been looking at these strange contraptions from the Victorian era, which are mostly sort of string and paper and bits of wood and things that we called like gutta percha nobody knows what gutta percha is but it sounds great <laughs> so I, I like that but I thought I was thought you know this must be clearly incredibly dangerous who would do this 
So I, I decided that my, my inventor, um, you know, who wanted to obviously make it, you know, survive, would have to find a test pilot. Um, and we've all met the kid who never gets hurt. Do you know mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the, the, usually a boy who can slam into a wall and, you know, we all go, ooh, and then he's like, I'm all right, I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's, always, there's always one of those, you know, the kid, the, the, you know, the, 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 is that where he's broken his leg and he's hopping around after 20 minutes, you know. So I decided the test pilot should be that. And so this, this book sort of just kind of started emerging and I enjoyed writing it, and so I did. And I wasn't sure what to do with it because you know. It's, um, so um, I, I always been want you know, some some writers don't want anybody in the world to see their stuff until it's you're know, in per- perfect shape. Mm-hmm. But I'm not like that. I'm, I'm quite willing to let people just have a look at what I've done. And a, a friend um, who every year she would. Um, she would get her kids and some and some other kids together at their sort of country cottage for a week in the summer, and they would read a book, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. And so she said, "Well, can you do you mind me if I copy this and pass this out to my to my kids?" Anyway, so we did that, and she they they all liked it and had some suggestions. The boys all wanted more explosions, and the girls wanted more sweet romance. And she said, "You know, I have a friend who's a a, a book illustrator." So, um, would you would you mind if I sent you know? Can I give him your number? And I said, well, absolutely. So I have this this rather strange conversation a couple of days later with this this wonderful Canadian illustrator called Bill Slavin, who's also a war gamer, um, lovely guy. And uh, the conversation is one of those where I say, um, would you mind looking at this if you have time and don't mind? And he was saying, well. You know, I'm happy to do that, but I'm not going to make any promises. You know, that whole very cautious, I'm mm-hmm. encouraging you, but I'm not going to make any promises. And it was like, that was fine. And then two days later, he calls me back and says, I love this. This is fantastic. This, is a, this makes me laugh. Um, and I know a, an editor with a specialist children's publisher um, who I think will like, will like it too. And so I, we, I had the same conversation with this woman. And... Uh, uh, and uh, her name is Tara, and she's uh, she's just great. And um, we have this exact same conversation where she she said, "Um, I'll look at it, but um, I'm not going to promise anything." And mm-hmm. two days later, she called me back and said, "I want to publish this. This is great. I want this." And I would like to tell you that. And three weeks later, we had a book. But publishing is glacial. Yes. So two years later, we had a book. Uh, but, quick, actually. <laughs> But that was my that was the first of my my kids' books, and I did uh, two more in that series, and um, then uh, so uh, so it's it's kind it's kind of a trilogy, um, and then I wrote a book called Bug Brush the Barbarian, mm-hmm. which was sort of aimed at the the re- whereas the the the, the 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 series is called Mad Misadventures. It's the strictest school in the world, the faceless fiend, and the island of mad scientists. And I, I, my reader for those, you know, in my mind, is sort of a fairly smart 12-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, because whenever I would do public readings, I would, you know, I would see these, these kind of the, you know, it's usually, you know, you know the, uh, the eighth, the, the seventh grader with glasses. 
you know, the one who's looking at you with, with a little bit of a smile, like you're getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, Bugbrush the Barbarian was clearly written for her delinquent younger brother. <laughs> because Bugbrush is, it's essentially, it's, it's, it's a sort of a, a mix of fantasy elements. Bugbrush is a, a barbarian boy so stupid that his family decide to send him on a quest before he wrecks the whole, the whole village. <laughs> um, but it's got sort of elements of, uh, elements of, you know, Robert E. Howard, elements sure. of the sword and the stone. Um, and it's full of, full of little tips. I just, you know, it's, it's full of, it's, 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 it's full of, you know, how to handle different situations, all of which from a, from a very stupid perspective. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me reach over and grab my copy of Bug Brush, which is, which is right here. Uh, the chapters are all, all have the wrong numbers. Um, and, uh, you know, just after, after a while, Bug Brush just runs out of fingers and toes and just gets his numbers wrong. And then it's full of educational things like phrase of the day. Uh, word of the month. Uh, did you know? Um, there's. Uh, let's see if I can find one. Uh, prehistory lesson. As you probably know, there are all sorts of primitive hu- humans: Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, Peking man, the always interesting Homo erectus. But these ape men were always uh, are the kind found in old Hollywood movies. They grunt and jabber and have more hair on their backs than your father. <laughs> so educational stuff. So I, I, anyway, bug, bug brush. People either liked it or they hated it, um, and <laughs> I like it. What can I say? Um, <laughs> then after that, I did a book called Zombie Elementary, mm-hmm. and and this was sort of interesting. Bug brush hadn't sold very well because mm-hmm. the, the publisher didn't really promote it, so, and also because those who didn't like it didn't like it a lot. Um, I wrote a book, I wrote a book about a. a, a a ten-year-old boy who's not the swiftest kid in class at all. Uh, you know, he's, he's one of those that struggles to get a C. So he doesn't expect to be the first person to notice anything. But when the school, you know, when the school gets zombies and the teachers sort of refuse to take any notice, he's the one that has to step up. Mm-hmm. And because he's, a ba- because he's a little league player, he steps up with his baseball bat. Somebody has to be the one that takes on the zombies. Anyway, I wrote this, and it's, it's, it's again very sort of entertaining, silly stuff written for a sort of ten-year-old. And I sent it to the same publisher, and they turned it down because mm-hmm. zombies were clearly a fad that no one was going to be interested in. So I was I was a bit uh, taken aback by this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and. Um, the um, so and and, and I, I sort of shopped it around a little bit, trying to deal with agents. And I have to say that dealing with agents is, is, is not a barrel of fun because agents tend to be looking for the next big thing. Um, and if you're not what they have in mind, they're not interested. Um, but uh, the my my initial editor, uh, Tara Walker, um, I, I she got a new job she, with a different publisher, and uh, we. I, either I called her or she called me. I don't remember which. But she said, did you ever do anything with that zombie book? And I said, no, no one seems to want it. She says, well, I do if you've got it. Send it to me and I'll, I'll, I won't say anything. I'll just give it, give it around to some of my, my editors and see what they think. And um, they liked it. So, uh, so, so that got accepted. And, and Zombie Elementary, has it came out through... Uh, uh, Tundra Books, which is uh, a, ch- a, a young people's imprint of 
uh, random Penguin Random House, which means you know pretty good distribution, and that's done really quite well. Um, it was got picked up for a, uh, a French translation, which I have a copy of here. It's called Les Zombies du CM2. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure exactly what that means, um, and uh, and they, they added lots of slightly strange Gallic illustrations, French French. French book illustrations are mm-hmm. are, uh, are quite different to sort of the Anglo-American school, um, and um, which I was very very pleased about. And um, a um, paperback edition is coming out this summer. Oh, good! So, uh, so I'm excited. I'm yeah, excited. is is the French edition aimed at uh, Quebec, or is that more for mainland France, or just anybody who speaks like it's uh, a ma- mainland France? It's uh, 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 because I'm, I'm it's. Where is it from? So, I'll try and open it to find out where exactly where the publisher is. Um, but but yeah, there is, there is, any Canadian publishing has that sort of the, that connection with the French. But no, this is yeah, this is from uh, from Paris. Yeah, I, I think um, I remember you saying earlier one of the one of the changes that you had to approve was switching Marlboros to Gualas or something like that. Something like that. There's a few things. There's a few things like that, um, and it's it, it's quite because obviously you know and it involves baseball, which is actually a sport that I really don't know a great deal about. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm British, um, but obviously the baseball bat is the perfect weapon for for fighting zombies. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole section involving a, a little league game where the other team, uh, one of them has been bitten, and they kind of gradually turn into zombies over the course of the game. And my hero, Larry, um, his response to this is to think that now they're really slow so that he can probably get a home run today. <laughs> um, and, uh, but anyway, the, 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 Fren- the, 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 the French publishers were a little bit, you know, they're sort of like, oh, this long scene involving this game that none of, none of our readers will actually understand. <laughs> So uh, they may have taken bits of that out, but because you know the the exact details of baseball are are really not germane to the plot. Yeah, well, it's uh, it, it's like uh, well, just be like you know us ordinary folks reading about a Quidditch match in a Harry Potter book now, isn't it? Who? How would we do that? How would we, we put up with that? Yes. It's so uh, so anyway, that was but that was that was very good, and and I, I, I bringing it back to wargaming, I would say that since. Uh, since the the French uh, right the the publishing rights, um, you know, I got paid for them, um, and seeing as it was essentially free money, it was money that was not I hadn't really worked for and wasn't really demarcated to anything. Uh, it meant that I could buy a big lot of model soldiers from England earlier this year. Oh, very good. So very happy. So that th- those <laughs> those forty two mil shiny toys that you've you've seen were mostly paid for by French by by French publishing rights. That segues nicely into what you've been doing with uh, your 42 mil project and and running games. So I, I guess we should probably go ahead and start talking about actually running convention games. Absolutely. And I, I guess you need to start where you start and and that is with some type of inspiration or idea. Yes. Um one of the things for me about uh, about a whole, starting a project, and for me, it's almost always 
that if I'm going to design a game that I will you know have everything for it and that it will be something that I can put before the public you know within a few months tops mm-hmm. um, so the pro- the process is I mean occasionally I'll you know I'll build an army or a force or whatever for a you know a commercial game that my my friends are doing but uh, but more often than not it's um you know, I'm interested in this. How are we going to do this? Now, the, the 42 model, model soldiers, my, my friend Dan Foley, who's my, my regular war game, I won't say opponents, because that, that, you know, that really isn't how the relationship works. But right. my, my, my regular collaborator, sure. who, <laughs> and we, we, uh, who's usually on the other side to me, um, had started collecting these essentially copies of classic Britain's figures mm-hmm. um, from... Um, Company called Spencer Smith in England. Yes, uh, they're sculpted by Ali Morrison, who's an old Games Workshop sculptor who mm-hmm. has done things for Foundry and has a great war miniatures. Um, they're done very much as slightly smaller versions of old fifty-four uh, mil figures from you know pre-World War Two. And Dan had been collecting these, and I, I just really loved them. I just thought they were fantastic, and I. Uh, I kept telling myself, "Yeah, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. It's just, it's just too, too much of a, too much of a jump. Too, too, partly a, a it's too much of an investment in, you know, money and time and all those things that we we think about briefly before we do it anyway." And um, so I've made I've made a few houses for him as gifts, you know, just to kind of be my part of it. But I'm not going to paint it. I'm not going to get any figures. And of course, then I did. And um, one of the things about these, and I, you know. For those who have not seen them, these are fairly simple figures done in a, in a, cl- a very classic, old-fashioned style. And the painting on them is quite simple. Sometimes it can be just block colors, you know, red coats, mm-hmm. blue trousers, whatever. I tend to do a little bit more than that. Um, but uh, also, you know, and pink cheeks, just a blob of pink on the cheeks, and uh, a very... A, a, as glossy a coat as you can manage. And what they say, it's very much sort of H.G. Wells kind of appearance, and it's sort of like, don't take this seriously. Mm-hmm. Do not think of this as a simulation or a serious competition or any of those things. These, the, the figures basically look at you and said, say, we're here to have fun. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what I what, what I like about it. So we played a, 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 a couple of sets of rules. Uh, we tried Neil Thomas's One Hour War Games, which are actually very are very very good. But that was a little bit more abstract, and I then felt right for the toy soldiers. Okay. You know, I think toy, sol- toy soldiers should actually, you know, you should roll a dice more or less. Every man rolls a dice, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, when you when when someone is killed, you they fall over, right. <laughs> or at least are removed from the board. Um, and then we played a, a set by by Ross McFarlane, who's a wonderful Canadian guy who mm-hmm. uh, he's kind of been doing this for years. Except that there were, there were bits that we didn't quite understand because they were sort of patched together from different sets he'd done. Um, so we liked bits of them, and then we stole the bits we liked because this is how this is how all game designers work. We stole the bits we liked, sure. and then we added some completely different things, and we played around with it. And I wrote to Ross, and I said, uh, this is what we did. He said, okay. And he said, absolutely, it's fine. <laughs> go, go ahead. Yeah. Take the bits you want. I took them from somebody else anyway. Right. Um, 
because there, is, there really is no point in reinventing the wheel. Um, so anyway, this, this particular game, um, and it really, it's, it operates a little bit, I, I try to have a lot of old school elements in it. You know, you, you're, you're rolling a lot of dice, you're looking for sort of fives and sixes. Um, a lot of my games actually you want to roll low, but I thought an old school game you needed to roll fives and sixes. Um, it uh, you, you works on a deck of cards, so that on the the red cards the British move, and on the black cards the opposition move, which in my case are French. Um, the um, uh, you know on a uh, just uh, there's no standard turn sequence in the traditional way. It's like if I have a red card, I move. And when I've, all my units have moved, then I take off, the, I, then I, I start again. Um, and what I, so, so it's a very, very cheerful kind of game. Right. Um, armies, are very, units are very brave. We have none of this, they took 10% casualties and retreated. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. We don't, even, we don't even ask if they're nervous until they've lost a third of their men. You know. Um, melees are just sort of disastrously bloody, just frighteningly bloody um, in, in other words it's, it's, it's all the things that sort of a, a pre-modern war game ought to have right and um, when I run a convention game um, and I see people running running games at conventions that don't seem to actually fit the bill mm-hmm. you know, they'll just take a, they take a big game of right. what they like and just run it with a whole bunch of strangers for four hours until it until they run out of time, because convention games to me, um, it's a it's a particular setting. It's it's right. almost like, um, you know, it's not like a symphony concert. It's more like vaudeville. Mm. It has to be. It has to be sort of be very participatory. Um, a lot of very simple parts. You can't have, you know, and you know just. You, you can't have complex rules in a convention game and expect people to to, 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 to just sort of get them. Right. Um, you've got to be able to throw people right into it and go, ah, these are yours, there you are, those are the enemy. Oops. <laughs> he gets to move first, what are you going to do? Right. Um, I like that- to have... My, my, my rule on the convention games is that they, they have to be simple, they have to be fairly uh, and cheerful, they can't be... They and loud. They they can't be the kind of game where you have to sort of carefully think about what happens next, mm-hmm. because that doesn't work in that environment. It just becomes very frustrating. It doesn't right. mean you should never play games where, you know, where it's quiet and you think about what needs to happen next. It's just that that doesn't really work well well in the convention hall. No, I um, agree, and um, mm-hmm. uh, a, a big part of that is. Um, what I've heard referred to as rules transparency, meaning uh-huh. that within short order, you're not thinking about the rules, you're thinking about the actions that your units need to take on the table. Right. And it's simply, you know, if I move into this particular hedge, then I get a plus one. No, I need to move into that hedge so I can so I can be more protected. And right, and hedges, not, hedges, the hedges is a good thing. Yes. Yeah, you're you're not thinking about the numbers behind what you're doing. You're thinking about simply what you're doing, and mm-hmm. a, a rule set for a convention either needs to be slimmed or trimmed down to that point, right. um, because, like you said, it's you're effectively getting a band of anywhere from six to eight strangers together to play your game, and they need to be in the thick of the action, not 
you know, not spending thirty to forty-five minutes on a rules brief before you even get right. started. And or- uh, one of the things, one one episode in particular stands out. Mm-hmm. And it was at the recruits show. It was about three years ago. Uh, went to recruits and Lee Summit, and these guys had a very nice looking Napoleonic setup on a large table. And I forget. Mm-hmm. I think they were using General de Brigade or some some other relatively well known Napoleonic rule set. And uh-huh. about fifteen minutes into the rules brief, and they were still discussing how orders are passed without oh. without getting into how you actually move or shoot. I decided. Mm-hmm. No, this isn't for me. I'm, I'll be up front, and, and I and I told him this this is not going to be for me. I'm not going to have fun playing this. It looks great. I appreciate the work that you've put into it, but this isn't for me. And and I went and played. Actually, <laughs> I went and played a 15 millimeter game uh, using commands and colors Napoleonics. Uh huh. And so, you know, if and that speaks to also to you know different people's ideas of fun. Well, it's a question of context. Um, yeah. I, I tend to feel that, that you know that having that having people over to your house, um, especially if it's, you know we can have a long game. I've set it up. It's uh, maybe a more complex. You know, maybe a couple of sessions. I can leave it set up. Then, then that that fits that, that the game that you you, you talked about. Right. You know, we're learning a game. It'll be fairly low key. Uh, there's not going to be an awful lot of other stuff going on, and that works fine. But when you take that setup to a convention, uh, ev- the energy is different. Mm-hmm. Everything is sort of amped up. People will occasionally run off to the dealer room, or one of their friends will show up and tell them something. It's just, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Right. So you have to keep them. You have to keep them mo- sort of focused on the game. By keeping it fast, keeping it interesting, um, and keeping them engaged, right? So it's just a different thing. Um, that being said, I'll, I'll tell I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story because I like the story because it's fun. Um, there are, you know, obviously we, we said there are different kinds of war gamers, and pro- this is probably twenty years ago. It was at NashCon, uh, which was held in, in Nashville or mm-hmm. that part of the world um, on Memorial Day weekend. So it's getting pretty hot in Tennessee. And uh, we, um, the the game room was set up um, on a, it was on on the ground floor of a hotel, and there, there were big picture windows overlooking the swimming well, actually on the same level as the swimming pool, which was behind. And the um, the table nearest the window was set up for um, computer moderated Jutland. Okay. Now. Naval war games, particularly sort of 20th century model, uh, century kind of games, tend to be very much sort of statistics oriented, keeping mm-hmm. a lot of record keeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend not to look particularly interesting. There's a lot of grey battleships on blue cloth, um, and they attract a particularly ki- a kind of detail oriented war gamer. Sure, um, you know a lot of a lot of guys. A lot of guys who look a lot neater than your average wargamer. <laughs> uh, I think this actually still may have been the period of the pocket protector. These would be the pocket protector guys. Um, so, and a friend of mine was, was one. He's one of those people, and he so he was really interested in computer moderated Jutland. So they're over there, and as they've been going a while, a women's aerobics class starts outside 
through the window by the pool. And there's all these young women, you know, dressed in leotards on a hot day. <laughs> and you can kind of see the War Games room start turning their heads in the direction of these windows, except for the folks nearest the windows who are running Jutland. <laughs> and, and there they are, just carefully playing, you know, measuring, measuring carefully and, you know, writing down their orders while these women go through their exercises. And pretty much everybody else in the room is just staring at them, because they're war gamers. You yeah. know, war gamers. Like these, you know, prim- pretty sad. Primitive nice. men. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm just entertained by this whole thing. <laughs> so at the, end of, uh, at the end of the session, and you know, obviously the, the women go back to you know, their lives and everybody else. Finished. And I go up to, to the, the, they were just clearing up Jutland, so I go to my friend and I say, Gary, um, how was the game? He said, that was great, that was great. And I said, so what, what do you think about the show outside the window? And he said, well, what are you talking about? None of them had noticed. <laughs> Not one of them. And, and it was just so clearly this this game, which I would you know find really quite boring because it's basically like doing your taxes, but they found it completely engrossing and did not notice any other distraction. <laughs> so it takes all sorts. Oh, sure, sure, um, sure. It takes all sorts. Whereas you know, I would have said this is a terrible convention game. It's it's just too quiet and too detailed, and they're going to get. Uh, knocked off track right. and I of course you know run games that are completely the opposite I think it, that, it may have been at that same convention I was running uh, uh, a caveman game I, I was a very sophisticated caveman game some of which again the rules I stole from Bob Pavlik political Bob Pavlik uh, where you uh, uh, your movement is walking is the is you, you know if you take your hand and make the traditional walking movement with your second and third fingers mm-hmm that's how far you walk. Uh, running is the distance between your thumb and your pinky outstretched. <laughs> if you have a big hand, you move further. It's it's that level of game. Yeah. And uh, and you the, the the people are expected to do a certain amount of chanting and dancing if they want things to happen. Um, but in this particular game, um, aliens had arrived with a flying saucer to try and capture a caveman to take back to the to to their planet, which. Um, and I think Elvis and Napoleon were also aboard the, the, because they well, were being captured. Um, but but one of the the, the players uh, was about ten years old, and this was one of my brilliant you know what was I thinking ideas is I gave the aliens water pistols um, so that whereas the cavemen had to throw wadded paper as weapons, the cavemen had you know these futuristic water pistols. But of course, the ten-year-old could not be trusted just to only use his water pistol when it was time to shoot. So he was sort of promiscuously, sh- promiscuously shooting around. And Frank Chadwick was running a game at the next table. And, and I don't know if you know Frank, but Frank's a, Frank's a lovely man. Um, but this kid essentially just starts shooting up in the air before I can, you know, before I can say anything. Um, and uh, and just sort of sp- a, a, a spray of water lands on Frank's table and all the players surrounding it, <laughs> and I'm just mortified by this. Don't do that! Don't do that! Don't do that! Uh, and he just grins and just kind of smiles and waves at me, and um, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we and then we took the water pistol off the kid. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> but it was it was like you know. That, that's a, that's how a convention game should go, as far as I'm concerned. Right, right. The uh, 
the rule of thumb I use when it comes mm. to war games rules used at a convention is, for the most part, you should be able to hand a player either a legal-sized or letter-sized piece of paper front and back, uh-huh. and that's got everything they need to play. Right. And generally speaking, that that's that's going to get you through because it's like you said you've got a you've got a limited time frame you've got uh, a lot of distractions you need to get the game moving and it needs to stay moving until either it's completion or you run out of time whichever comes first right and uh, I in, in talking to the to uh, the meeples guys or listening to their show actually Mike Whitaker mentioned that a lot of the the uh, participation games at British shows nowadays are, you know, the participation games are you know fifteen to thirty minutes long, right? And so you've really got to get stuff stripped down because you know most of those shows are a day in length and that's it. And people come primarily to shop, so they yeah. don't want to stick around and and uh, right. and run and do a four hour game right. when they're not going to be there that long. Yeah, and that's and granted, British shows are a, are a different animal than than an American right. gaming convention, but you're still constrained by that three or four hour time limit, and there's only so much you can do. And if you're spending the first thirty forty five minutes on a rules brief, then mm-hmm. That's no good. I, I when I run a convention game, I try to keep the rules brief to ten minutes, and at the very bare minimum, it's all right. Here's what you do to activate. Here's what you do to move. When we get to combat, we'll discuss it then. Right. And get I think people it's a moving. Good policy. Actually, we might be getting ahead of ourselves just slightly, but the preparation for a war game I found is it's just like many other things. You know, if you if you do the right preparation, if you get things set. Then the mm-hmm. rest is going to go pretty smoothly. Because if because right. if you think about it, the amount of if you're starting from scratch on a new project to take to a convention, the lion's share of your time is going to be pre- preparing for that convention. Right. Whether it's painting figures, assembling terrain, getting your rules figured out, and not just figured out, but you need to be on top of the game. You need to have no question at all how to run it. And that that became apparent to me at my game weekend last year when I tried running uh, Henry Hyde's Shot, Steel, and Stone. Okay. And I, I don't know that game. It's, it's an old school type uh, 17th, 18th horse and musket mm-hmm. uh, type rules. And it uh, it's not particularly difficult or complex, but you need to have some pretty solid familiarity with it. And I was not familiar enough with how those rules worked, and it it cost, you know, it cost the players because they weren't they weren't able to have fun, and that's right. And that's the problem. If your players aren't having fun, then you're just wasting everybody's time. Yeah, and, and the thing about it is is that you know we can't control who the, you know the players and their reactions and what's going on with them, but we can make sure that they have all the things you know required yes to 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 do what they need to do right. And that's that's making sure you've got all the models you intended to bring, all the stat cards or whatever you're using for them, uh, all your dice, all your mm-hmm. all your tape measures or rulers or whatever you're using to measure, and just make sure it's all there because people people very quickly tire of hearing, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to bring X, Y, or Z. 
you know, and it, I, I must have, there have been a couple of times when I have had, had problems, um, usually stupid stuff, like uh, on one occasion, I was going to do a big pulp game, I, uh, for a number of years, and I, I've more or less stopped doing that because it, just because I've been doing other things rather than because there's anything wrong with it. But I was doing big pulp games at Historicon. Mm-hmm. Um, usually sort of 20 players, that kind of thing. I actually managed to get up to 45 players once. Wow. But it, but it was completely out of control. It was like, this is just, this is, I'm just doing, you know, I'm just doing this because I can rather than because it's good. Um, and also, a room with 45 war gamers in is a very, very sweaty place. Yeah. But um, we, uh, but anyway, this is going to be a, a, a game with you know multiple parties uh, using a, a desert ter- a desert terrain provided by the miniature building authority. Mm-hmm. They 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 set up a tables and ask people if they want to come play on them, which is great. Um, but anyway, I realized that whilst I got all the figures and all of them, I, I couldn't remember whether I'd brought the rules. It's like, did I put that box in? Did I put that box in? Oh. With the briefings, etc., um, and I stopped on the way. I was driving through. New- I pulled into a gas station in New Jersey, opened up the trunk. Nope, don't have them. And I have a choice because I'm about an hour from home. I could go and get them and then drive back, or I could, or, you know, do I know them well enough? And the, is it simple <laughs> enough? And the answer is, yeah, of course I do. Of course I do. This is astounding tales. The game I've run a million times. Right. Um, the only thing I can't remember, I don't have, that, that matters, is the, the stat cards for the different characters. And I thought, well, well, we'll wing it. So I went to the group, and I said, look, as I, I put on the game, and I said, okay, so each of you has a hero. Decide what he's good at. Decide what he's really good at. Well, she's really good at. Uh, you have sidekicks, and they're, they're still pretty good. And then the sort of minion types who are very average or like, worse. Um, just decide who they are. We won't we won't to worry too much about the numbers, but just just tell me what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know the player with uh, with Indiana Jones. He just says, "Well, he's Indiana Jones. You, you know what he's good at." You know, it's like yes, okay, we're, we're good. So your die rolls will be based on on those kind of expectations rather than you know Nazi guard number four, right? Um, and and it went absolutely fine. It went absolutely fine. We do. Um, you know, some people would say, "Well, yeah, but it's uh, it's the shadow. He can uh, can he emerge into the darkness?" I think he's a very good chance of that. You know, roll a die, anything but a six, and he manages it. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's uh, no one can see him. No, <laughs> despite the fact that the model is there. Sure, sure, sure. No, he's not, and that worked fine. There was because, be, um, and partly it's the, the nature of that that game that is very pulpy, very sort of you know B movie oriented. But also it was that the players were willing to to accept that uh, chunks of it were going to be kind of made up, but that was fine. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, how many dice do I roll? Yeah, sounds six sound reasonable. Ah, six sounds good. You know? <laughs> uh, but it requires a certain kind of player. I mean, obviously oh, yeah. a lot of players would be just horrified at the idea that this was, this was how the game was going to go and that they had nothing to look at. Well, that... that type of game, a pulp game like that, or a Victorian science fiction game in that in that uh, vein would that would fit. You know, if you're 
you know, if you're trying to put on a game, you know, you know, the third day at Gettysburg at the bloody angle, people, <laughs> people might have a, a different view of it. It's I, exactly, exactly. Though I, w- I will say that one of the most interesting games I ever played was, and this was in the early eighties, um, was the Napoleonic Mugger game, <laughs> which is like a mega game but for for mugs, and it was run by uh, the late Doctor Paddy Griffith, who was really one of the great heroes of wargaming. If, if people who don't know Paddy Griffith, they should look him up. Um, but uh, Paddy had set out this really big Napoleonic game on a floor. Um, just lots of scenery, and it wasn't, it wasn't elaborate. In fact, I think my, the unit I had was uh, uh, not early 1960s FX Grenadier Guardsman painted blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it did not. This was, it did not look, you know, fantastic. But we got down on on our on, on our hands and knees, and um, I had a unit of a, an infantry unit of about eighty figures. Now, when you're used to having a battalion of you know twelve or twenty four figures or whatever, actually having that many figures, it makes you you realize that actually deploying them is a lot more trouble than you're mm-hmm. used to. You know, you can't just say we'll form line here because you find that. You know, there's a there's a hedge and there's a house and there's a wood and you know this line is two feet long, um, but there were no rules. Uh, the, there were there was the basic there was there were some really basic rules about how how far we moved, but it was it, it was it was very much sort of uh, uh, when I say move in infantry you can move up to a foot, that kind of thing. Sure. And um, and, and so we we essentially crawled around. Uh, and I had a, what I, what I did have was a ba- it was was a, a basic description of my unit, which told me you know these were these you know these were German reserves reservists who weren't very willing to be fighting for the French, and would probably probably shouldn't expect too much in the way of heroism from them. So anyway, so so I I, I treat them that way, and we crawl forward, and the player behind me stops to set fire to a farm, <laughs> and. We're not, you know, he doesn't say why because we can't communicate because he's too far away. And then I, re- I get into this village where a, a, a an opposing, an allied player, you know, is is stretching out with his skirmishers. And then he and I sort of negotiate what we think happens next. And we have some dice, but we don't have any rules. And so we sort of have to talk through what we think would happen mm-hmm. and make up kind of a, you know, well, I think your skirmishers would retreat because I'm in. Yeah, they probably would, but they might not. Well, how about one, two, three, they retreat right now, four, five, six, they stay in position. Yeah, that sounds good. And it was, it was very much like that, because it, and what, the, the effect of it was that it made us think about what would be likely to happen, right. rather than how the rules mechanics would run through. Right. I mean, that's, that's uh, real, that's, I mean, if there's no rules, then you automatically have rules transparency. Yes. And that would require, of course, that would require players with more than just a passing knowledge of the period, right? But um, no, that's that's a fascinating experiment. That's that'd be that'd be worth. Uh, well, it'd also require an appropriate attitude, you know. If absolutely, you know, if if you're saying, well, well, these are the old guard, of course they're going to win. Mm-hmm. You know, well, uh, <laughs> not always. You know, but they're going uphill through a muddy field. Under artillery fire, yeah. uh, does that make a difference? I think it probably makes a difference. Right, right, right. 
<clears throat> no, that'd be that'd be fascinating to do, and I could definitely see the large units like that would ref would definitely make you think a little bit more about how you're deploying in your unit because you know as a regimental commander that's that's the t or a battalion commander depending on your era that's that's a lot of what you had to think about is just simply getting from point A to point B relatively intact. Well, what's the story about Abraham Lincoln as a militia commander where he just did not know the drill to get people over a fence? Mm -hmm. So he just sort of told him to form up on the other side and he'd start over. <laughs> you know, just just climb, climb over the fence and we'll form up and we'll you know, start again. It's, yeah, you know. <laughs> no, that makes perfect um, sense. And, you know, with the... Uh... You know, I have that. I have a similar challenge with instructing drill and ceremonies to the officer candidates that, yeah. <laughs> that I instruct. So it's, yeah, it's it's a challenge, but it it's not insurmountable, and it's not the most important thing we do. But we still have to do it and stay in one piece and and get on with the day. Right. Well, you know, 18th and 19th century armies actually had, off, you know, junior officers whose jobs. You know, uh, as part of their, their the command was to go out and measure the distances between. You know, the, 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 you know our unit will be in this space. Go and measure it, mm -hmm. um, because that's that's the that's, that, well, that, you know we, they, they knew how you know they know a battalion is depending on what it is, but say so, the battalion is two hundred yards wide. So you have to make sure that you have two hundred yards of clear ground, because you cannot squeeze them. You, uh, whereas war gamers can go, well, can I just like shuffle that one back a bit, or can I move that tree? Would it be okay if I move that tree? <laughs> and uh, in real life, it's sort of like, well, we're sort of formed up, except for the company that's kind of stuck on a wall, right? <laughs> you know, which, which war gamers do all the time, right? Right. No, it's um, no, but what you're describing there, that uh, that game that Doctor Griffith ran, mm. that. That sounds fascinating. I'd, I'd love to do something like that. And you, you know, given given your background and some of the folks you know, I would have thought that the modern warfare would actually work very well with that. Mm -hmm. So much that is is not visible. Oh yeah. And you'd be, you know, you'd be you'd be saying, okay, so so this is your platoon, and and this is what you see, and uh, we believe there's enemies out there, but well, you know, we're not quite sure. You're gonna have to figure out where they are. Right. No, that that be that would be interesting. I could I could see doing something like that on a now this is a relatively large space that you were playing on. It was. It was. A, it, we had a probably. I think it was probably something like a classroom, which okay. all the furniture had been moved against the walls. Sure. Um, again, again, the the uh, you know when we were crawling around on our knees, which frankly I think I was probably twenty four at the time, and is probably a lot more attractive at twenty four. <laughs> If I tried it today, I might have to have people help me back to my feet. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's. I mean, I'm just thinking about the different, the different things you could do with that. For example, um, you know, if you were to do, uh, you know, a science fiction game with with spaceships, you know, you could describe describe the ship as being. Eh, it's not particularly fast and. It's not. It doesn't have great armor, but you know your your engineers are really top notch. Mm -hmm. You know what speed you can get, you can count on getting it, and your weapons are immaculately maintained, and mm -hmm. you've got some of the best gunners in the squadron. Right. 
And so, you know, as as the game master, you'd you'd have that in the back of your head, and you know, you might have to ask the ask the ship captain, okay, what's what what do you got going for you? You know, you could have you could have uh, maybe pros and cons, or maybe not pros and cons, but you know, benefits and detriments, or however you want to word it. That'd be really mm-hmm. interesting. That'd be really neat to do. Well, it's I remember a game I played under uh, Chris Engel. Chris Engel is also a wonderful, you know, innovative game designer. Um, but a World War One game where I was commanding uh, an American battalion in in 1918, and we were we were conducting an advance against a German position. And he did not, you know, he didn't give me a lot of numbers. You know, he didn't say, "Well, a company is is really," you know, he didn't he always rated as, you know, veteran. Uh, good shooters, A morale. Like he didn't do any of that. You know, he said, "Well, you know, A company is is, is probably your best in terms of in terms of training. Uh, got your your oldest soldiers in that." And he, and then he told me about the captain. He told me about the commander. And he did this throughout the line. And one of them had a very very suspect commander, who was actually based on uh, on an alcoholic. One of the the. Uh, he was an alcoholic commander who was actually one of the guys who, in later life, went on to form Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. But apparently in World War I, he'd been a, a bad company commander with a <laughs> drinking problem. And so Chris describes these companies to me based in terms, less in terms of, of the differences between them, because they're, they're all you know companies of the same battalion, but who commands them. And within you know, 30 seconds of him beginning this, I realized that the company with the alcoholic commander could not be relied on to do anything but basically stay in position. Mm-hmm. And even then, even then, I might question as to whether this would happen. Yeah. Not because the men weren't any good, but because he would make random decisions <laughs> that weren't necessarily the ones I wanted. Right. Um, so so my, my entire game plan was con- consisting basically having four companies, three of which I could rely on, and one of which I was really questioning. Mm-hmm. No, no. And the question, the first quest question I asked, obviously, was, well, "Can I have him removed from his command?" Well, no, it's just not. <laughs> <laughs> it <doesn't> work that way. <laughs> well, that's great. That's great. You know? So, um, I guess we we need to just uh, kind of wrap, start wrapping things up. Where okay. where are you going with your gentleman's war rules? What's what's next for that? Well, I have I have just about finished. Uh, one of the essences of. of rules design for me is not just do they work, you know, at my house or, you know, at my local shop with my friends. Um, can somebody who has, you know, who doesn't have me present, can you just can you just play them perfectly from the rules? You know, just reading it and play it, does it work? Um, so I'm sending out, I'm sending out sets of them and I'm hoping, you know, people will actually play them and give me feedback. And, and some people are, you know, just, you know, play this, tell me what works, tell me what you didn't understand, do you have any improvements? Because people constantly have ideas that are improvements. Mm-hmm. They also have ideas that aren't improvements, but, you know, that's okay, too. Because I'll just take the improvements. Um, I'm, we, may, we may have it published just... My, my friend Roderick and Robertson and I have been running a, a little, a tiny little company called Pulp Action Library mm-hmm. for uh, four years now. Um, and we sell through War Games Vault, and we sell either as PDFs or as, as printed copies. So at a minimum, we can, we can do that. Um, because the sort of shiny toy soldier rules tend to have, they're, they're, they have a nostalgic element. 
So I think that the audience is probably older than right. for some things I've written. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who are going, oh, I remember these figures from when I was a kid in 1962. Well, you know, so, so, it's, so they they probably so, so they will definitely want like you know paper you know bound paper copies as opposed to PDFs. Um, but I might you know we'll we'll see where it goes because I, I would also like it to reach a, a larger audience. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's happening this year is that a set of rules that we did a few years ago called uh, um, Mad Dogs with Guns, which is you know gangsters of the twenties and thirties. Um, Osprey is doing a, a fancy a fancy version of it with some oh, nice. new rules, but you know obviously the full Osprey treatments with uh, with really good artwork and stuff like oh, that. Oh, excellent! Congratulations. Don, thank you, thank you. So that should be out uh, probably this summer. I'm not sure for dates. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, and, and, and I like it. I'm more interested in, in in game design than I am the actual sort of physical selling of things. Sure. You know, I don't really. I have done the the whole thing where I have four boxes of books in the spare bedroom, mm-hmm. and I smell, you know. <laughs> After you know, go and put them in an envelope with a little note and send them to people after work. I, I, that doesn't really float my boat, right. uh, particularly. Um, so it'd be nice if a gentleman's war uh, we, we could get done in a, in a larger and you know more um, a more professional format. Sure, but we'll, now, we'll see about that. We'll see about. It. Now with Mad Dogs with Guns coming out uh, is. Uh, do you see yourself going to the conventions here in the U.S. to help promote that and run games, or is that not not necessarily a consideration? We'll yet? we'll we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to see. I'm I, I again because I I tend to have many many projects going at any one time. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll 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 see. I, I I have to say that I one thing that with gangsters and I think the things that prevented gangsters necessarily taking off was a huge thing is that you have to have. At least it's a really good idea to have you know half of Chicago on the table, right? And uh, there, there's a, a, a group from Toledo who has been running some wonderful Mad Dogs games with this incredible layout mm-hmm. of you know 1920s American city with you know docks and Chinatown and red light district, mm-hmm. and it looks wonderful. But clearly, this is a giant club project, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love what they've done. Um, I'm not sure I'm in a position to do that. <laughs> well, um, well, just as inspiration, you know, take a look at the Bruce Willis movie Last Man Standing. Mm-hmm. That takes place in a dusty southwest border town, and you know, if you've already got buildings for your old west games, then right. you're about halfway there. You just need to add a couple of cars and some appropriately armed figures with 45s and Tommy guns and. You know, you're set. Well, I- I- exactly. What I what I have done is done some some bootlegger games uh, involving, um, you know, there's a boat coming in from uh, across Lake Ontario from Canada, mm-hmm. and the gangsters are go the gangsters are going to meet the boat, but a rival gang is going to hijack it from them. Yeah, and the local cops, who are of course are you know two guys in an old Ford T, have been alerted but don't quite. You know, aren't quite sure what to do about this because right. they're completely outmanned and outgunned. Right. And there's an FBI team, and then there's maybe some local folks who are just kind of interested and don't like people, you know, coming, bothering, bothering 
them and, and their county. So you get multiple, uh, mo- you know, multiple parties without actually having to have a, a big city. I, I've also done um, moonshiner games, which oh, yeah. you know, have that. You know, again, you're, it's you know, trees and mountains and uh, and old pickup trucks and uh, oh yes, and that and uh, well, Bonnie, so, so you know, Bonnie and Clyde weren't weren't found at the corner of Main and Second Street or anything. They like were that. not. They were not. In fact, they they would probably have probably have found that a very threatening place, a very oh. alien place to their experience. No. They were they were tech country folk. Yeah. So, mm. so there's a, a lot of things that can be done. The, the other project I'm going to move on slightly, if you don't mind. No, please. Um, I, I have been working on is with um, the folks from Crucible Crush, uh, which is called Flint and Feather. Crucible Crush is Bob Bob Merch from Pulp Figures, who's okay. been a friend of mine for 15 years, um, and Lee Van Shake, who works for who's a he's part of the Ratham family, mm-hmm. um, and this is kind of a side project for both of them. Um, Bob had got really interested in the wars of the uh, Iroquois and uh, Huron in the, the 17th century, mm-hmm. which is very sort of heroic Native American warfare. A lot of, you know, proving who you are, running around the woods, watching other people and admiring them, that kind of thing. Right. Having, having grudges against people on the other side who you know perfectly well who they are, you know. Um, and um, made some wonderful figures for that. And they asked Roderick and I to write the rules for that, um, which uh, which we've been developing over a couple of years. And, and Lee has been running a lot of test games and added a lot of stuff himself. And I, you know, the the rules themselves, it, it's all he did. He did a very successful Kickstarter last year uh, to 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 fund the ho- fund the project. So you know, Bob has been working on the figures himself anyway, and those should be coming out later this year. Um, and and I find that very very interesting. It's uh, because it's it has fantasy elements, um, but not a traditional fantasy element. Right. It has it, essentially there are aspects of of Native American mythology, um, which can appear in the game. They don't have to. You can play a straight historical game, absolutely you know, without without any featuring any of these things. But we have things like this giant floating head. Which is just you know a, a, a large scale head, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, scary as hell. Um, there's a giant naked bear. Naked bears are scary. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a horned serpent, um, and there's some other ones as well. But again, these are these are elements that can appear in the game, right? Um, and uh, and bring in this whole aspect of. Of, the, of mythology that we don't normally see. That most most games are either historical games or they're fantasy games. Mm-hmm. And most fantasy games are very much in sort of standard European traditions, the sort of the Tolkien tradition right. and the, the sword and sorcery tradition. But they're all they're all kind of set in that. Whereas this takes this this, this takes you know, the the legends of the Great Lakes people, and they can appear on your table. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, Yes, yes. So that's uh, and and the game itself is is I think it's a lot of fun. I, I, I again my my definition of fun being being what it is. It usually involves games where I can think I'm winning until the moment I've suddenly lost badly. <laughs> and sometimes it works the other way around, but right, right. but more often it's like yeah things are going well until ooh that's my great warrior killed. Yeah. Ooh I've just failed morale. Oh we're going home. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, very good. Well, um, I appreciate you coming on the show today, Howard. It's been a it's been absolutely delightful speaking with you today. And, Thank you. Um, I'll have everything in the show notes. Uh, folks want to go check out uh, Pulp Action Library and Flint and Feather and various other projects, Mad Dogs with Guns, etc. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you in the, in the future, I'm sure. And hope to Thank run you. into you at a at a convention in the near future, if at all possible. Wonderful. And, and uh, just like always, folks, if if you're not having fun with your gaming, well, you make it fun, okay? That is all. Gamer is copyright J. Arnold 2017. Be sure to leave a review on iTunes. Discussion on the blog at theveteranwargamer.blogspot.com. Music courtesy of bensound.com.